following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Now we're uh, going to continue our series in Revelation, the penultimate message of Revelation, Revelation 21. And we've, we've tracked through this book of the Bible for the, the best part of the year. And we've worked our way through some pretty scary scenes and some pretty horrific images of judgment. And finally, today, we come to the real good news and the climax of the book, this amazing picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that John sees, just this stunning vision here towards the end of the book. So let's read this together, Revelation 21, and we'll dip into the first part of chapter uh, 22 as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a high great wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. 
I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at a church that I used to go to, there was a worship song that we used to sing quite a bit called We Will Dance. And it was a song about heaven, a song about what was going to happen when Jesus returned. And one of the verses of the song went like this. Sing a song of celebration, lift up a shout of praise, for the bridegroom will come, the glorious one, and oh, we will look on his face, we'll go to a much better place. And I suppose for me at the time, that reflected the basic hope that I had, that when Jesus returned, he was going to take me and every other Christian away to heaven. And that that was going to be our final home, that was going to be our final destination, that would be our final resting place. The implication is that this, this world is not a very nice place. And that what God's going to do, the final act in the biblical story, is that God's going to take us from this not-so-nice place to a much better place, another home that heaven, another realm called heaven, is going to be our final home, and that's where we're going to be with Jesus forever. That's how I grew up, that's what I grew up thinking and being taught, and I never really questioned it because nobody questioned it for me. And I think most Christians are the same. Uh, that's generally what we've been taught. That's generally what we think of as heaven. That's generally how we think about the final destination. Our worship songs tend to reflect that thinking. Our hymns tend to reflect that thinking. The old spirituals tend to reflect that thinking. Think about swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. What's the implication? We're going from here to there, and the destination is there, not here. I just want to encourage you this morning, gently and warmly, that uh, if you've walked the same road as me, if that's what you've grown up assuming about how the story is going to end, I just want to encourage you, just for the next few minutes, allow yourself to entertain the possibility that maybe the story has a different ending. I want to encourage you to come at this chapter, Revelation 21, with fresh eyes. Have a fresh look at it. Open your heart and your mind and your eyes and your ears enough to allow the possibility that there may be something new here that you hadn't thought or seen before. So what John sees is this spectacular vision of a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
Now, it sounds, doesn't it, at first glance, like what God's going to do here is take the present earth, the present world, the present creation, burn it up, throw it away, stick it in the rubbish, and then replace it with this brand new heaven and brand new earth. That tends to be the traditional thinking. But this is where we've got to read carefully and closely and keep reading on past verse 1. Because by the time you get to verse 4, John says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's the key. It's the old order of things that passes away. It's not that this physical world itself is going to pass away and be replaced. It's that the the old order of things in this world will be replaced with a new order of things in this world. The present order of things is marked by brokenness, by sin, by corruption, by scandal. We hear this week of scandal in the U.S. military. We hear of conflict between Israel and Hamas. Our world is marked by the suffering and this brokenness. That's the present order of things. That's the old order of things. But one day when Christ returns, that present order of things in the world is going to give way to new creation. It's going to give way to a new order of things that will be governed and reigned by the shalom of God, the peace of God, the peace of Christ. It will cover the earth and the knowledge and the glory of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So it's like as if you said about someone you know, he's a new man. What are you saying? Not that the old person has literally been destroyed and a new person's been created. You're saying that person has been so transformed. They've turned over a new leaf. Their life has been turned around. They're a new person. That's what it'll be like with the new creation. Not the world's going to be burned up and thrown away, but it will be so utterly renewed so utterly redeemed, so utterly resurrected, that it will be nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. It will be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Now, I know this is a stretch for some of you, and you're looking at me like, what planet are you from? Add to this the picture that John sees of the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, this image of the new Jerusalem, is an image of the people of God. It's not so much an image of the place we're going to be, it's an image of the people of God, those who follow Jesus. Now again, we assume that the final movement of the biblical story is going to be one where God takes us from earth up to heaven. There's sort of an upward movement in our minds of how it's all going to go. But look at what John sees in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. John doesn't see an upward movement. He sees a downward movement, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the people of God and heaven itself coming down from heaven to earth. And where the rest of the action takes place through Revelation 21 and 22 is on earth. That's where the people of God arrive. That's where the action happens. And the beautiful irony is that we come from heaven where God is And yet, as we come into the new creation, God himself is already here. Because God makes his dwelling. Look at the voice from the, listen to the voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. That word dwelling is the same word used back in Exodus, the Greek equivalent of the word for tabernacle. God dwelt among his people back in the wilderness through the tabernacle where his presence was there, incarnated among the camp of Israel. 
And then it's the same word that gets picked up in John chapter 1 to describe Jesus who dwelt among us. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. He literally tabernacled among us. The presence of God tabernacled among us. And then one final time in the New Testament, that Word is used, dwelling, for here God makes His dwelling among His people. Finally, God tabernacles among us in fullness, in glory, the complete presence of God, spreading His tabernacle out above the whole earth and on the earth, that He might be with us and we might be with Him. This is the ultimate incarnation. The incarnation that happened at Jesus' birth was the first incarnation, but we're looking forward to the great incarnation, the ultimate incarnation of God on earth among us. This is the ultimate revelation of God as Emmanuel. That's not just something he did once at Christmas. That's who he is. He is Emmanuel, and he will one day be Emmanuel, God with us, right here in this world, on this earth. And if God is going to come into this new world with us, then he is going to bring all of heaven with him, because heaven is where God is, right? Heaven is God's space. It's God's realm. And so if God comes from heaven to earth, heaven's going to follow him. And the picture you get is that heaven and earth, right at the end of the biblical story, heaven and earth will become one. God's final great redemptive act is not going to be transporting Christians from earth to heaven. It is going to be uniting heaven and earth together. Heaven and earth right now are two separate realms, aren't they? That's clear enough, right? People that you know, Christians you know, who have died, where are they? In heaven, with God. That's where the Father resides. That's where Jesus the Son resides, sitting on the Father's throne at His right hand. The the Scriptures are clear on this. God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. That's true in the present. And one day what is going to happen is those two realms are going to come crashing together. Heaven and earth will become one. God and His people will become one. This beautiful fusion of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. So in one sense, it's accurate to say that heaven is our final home as long as we mean by that heaven as a renewed, resurrected, created, redeemed, restored world where God lives here on earth with His people. Heaven is a place on earth, as the old 80s song says, or at least it will be. I know for some of you, this really is out of the box. I know because I've been there, and when I first heard this stuff, I thought the person telling it to me was on a completely different planet as well. But the more that I've gone back and looked at this chapter and other passages in the Bible that speak of the final destination of God's people, like Romans 8, which talks about creation itself being liberated from its bondage to decay, like Isaiah 65, which pictures the earthiness of the new heaven and the new earth, whereas one writer puts it, the lion will lie down with the lamb and the dog will make peace with the rabbit and the cat will be no more. That's, oh, I know, I know. The congregation split right down the middle at that point. Cat people and non-cat people. I know this is a stretch and I know it might be new thinking. But I think this as a goal in the biblical story is a spectacular vision that John gives us. That our final destiny is not to be rescued from the world, it's to be rescued along with the world. It's not to be resurrected 
apart from the world. It's to be resurrected along with creation. It's not to be redeemed away from this world. It's to be redeemed with this physical world. It's not to be glorified alone. It's to be glorified along with all creation so that the final goal in the whole story is nothing less than the glorification of creation. That's the end goal, that all creation and those who love the Lamb are glorified, brought into the realm, the radiant glory of God. That's the picture the Scriptures give us of where the story's going. And I know that that's difficult to get your head around and your heart around in the present because we see such a broken, messed up world, it's hard to imagine that it could ever be other than what it is. But there's five words here in Revelation 21.5 that make all the difference. It's the second time, the second and last time in this book that God the Father speaks. He only speaks twice. And this is the second of the two in in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's what will make the difference. So the picture is that God takes us from the earth so that we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And while we are before the judgment seat, God undergoes this huge purging of the world, this purging of the earth. It's like taking a blowtorch to a piece of gold, purifying it from anything that contaminates it. God's going to wipe out any trace of Satan's influence and reign. All evil will be washed away, burned away, and then those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be ushered by the Father back into the new creation, repopulating this world in the presence of God and one another for eternity. That's the, that's the movement that we see in, in Revelation 21. And if that's the case, if heaven really is going to be a renewed and restored earth, then all sorts of new questions arise, don't they? All sorts of really interesting questions, like, is there going to be Facebook and the new creation? Is, is everyone just going to automatically be everyone's friend on Facebook? Is there still going to be a defriend button? Uh, what, what, how, how's it going to work? You know, is, will there be instant coffee or only the espresso stuff? Is there really going to be a need for decaf? Surely not. What's going what's to happen to politicians in the new creation? Will any of them survive the great purging? Will they, I mean, what, what will they do? Maybe they'll have the job of making the burgers look exactly like the pictures so that what's on the menu is what's on your tray. I don't know. I think one thing we do have to be careful of when we start our imaginations going down that road is that we don't just imagine the new creation to be a really great version of of the good life that we experience here. In other words, that we don't impose our own materialistic view of life onto the new creation and assume it's going to be all about our own personal luxury and pleasure. Otherwise, the new heaven and earth really just becomes a sanctified version of consumerism. And that's not the biblical picture. The images that Revelation 21 22 give us of the new creation, there's not a lot of specifics, but the images we do have, a lot of them are drawn from the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, and then you read Revelation 21 and 22, first two chapters of the Bible, and then the last two, you'll notice some striking parallels. This is, this is Eden renewed and restored. One of the most remarkable features here is the reappearance in Revelation 22 of the tree of life. The tree of life that Adam and Eve originally had access to, but then they sinned and they were forbidden from eating it any longer as they were driven out of the garden. And all through the rest of the biblical story from Genesis 3, 
the tree of life has been off limits to human beings because they've not been able to take hold of the true life, the eternal life, the truly human life that God has promised us. And you get right here at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22 and the tree of life's there again. And it's even greater than the tree of life in Genesis 1 and 2. Now it's on both sides of the river. Now it's bearing fruit every single month, not just once a year. See, the, the, the new creation is not just a return back to the Garden of Eden. It's Eden renewed. It's Eden 2.0. This is greater than the Garden of Eden. This is better than anything back in the Garden of Eden. There is no propensity to sin anymore because there's no Satan in the new creation. There's not even the temptation to go that way. The whole earth has now become the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God said it was good. In the new creation, it's going to be perfect. It's Eden taken and brought to its final destination. And the most significant thing about that life that we'll have as we eat from the tree of life again in the new creation is that it will be life with God. It's not just about you living in your mansion in the sky or enjoying this treat. It's about knowing God and being in the direct and immediate presence of God forever. That beautiful community that's going on all the time between Father, Son, and Spirit, one day we're going to be drawn into it. Not that we become God, but that God enfolds creation and humanity within His embrace. That we have the same intimate relationship with the Father that Jesus the Son has. We have the same relationship with Jesus that the Spirit has. And we're brought into the very life and love of God. Everything that we do in the new creation is going to be so infused with the presence of God. I don't even think you can say God-centered. It's more like God-consumed. Every thought, every motive, every word just so saturated with the power and the presence and the life of God pulsing through our veins. We'll finally know who we are because our relationship with God will be utterly perfected. And out of that relationship with God, we're going to enjoy the best of human relationship, human community. You're not going to be an island in the new creation. You'll enjoy relationship with one another as it was always created to be. No more loneliness. No more people being left out. No more kids not being picked for a team at lunchtime. No more office gossip. No more people backstabbing each other. No more political game playing. No more power plays, no more manipulation, no more passive-aggressive behavior, no more feeling threatened, no more feeling socially isolated. All of that's gone, and we will just experience true and rich and authentic human community. Finally, we're going to be able to take the mask off. You know the mask I mean, the one we all wear all the time. We project this image of ourselves. feel like we've got to be certain things to certain people living up to everyone's expectation, living up to our own expectations. Finally, you're going to be able to take the mask off and be absolutely who you are without any fear that anybody's going to think any less of you. Without any feeling of insecurity, we will be able to be totally vulnerable with each other, not feeling like there's some things I can put out on stage and some things I have to leave backstage. We'll just be totally who we are, totally open and experience pure relationship. You're never going to feel threatened by another person. You'll never feel unsafe around another person. Your kids can go play down the road as much as they like, 
and their safety will never be threatened. You're not going to need keys, or at least not to lock stuff. Why are you going to need key? What are you going to need to lock? You can leave your laptop on the back seat of the car open with $100 notes on top of it and the car door open and a massive sign saying, steal me, and people will just walk past and go, what a trusting person. God bless him. So trusting. That's the kind of, we don't, you don't need to lock your doors. There will be no threat to your personal security anymore. Every word that people speak to each other will be one of encouragement and blessing. As John Ortberg puts it, every time one human being touches another, it will be to express encouragement and affirmation and delight. That's the new creation. That's coming. That's not a pipe dream. That's the world that God is going to usher in for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And we'll not only experience this beautiful relationship with one another, we'll be whole people on the inside. No more depression, no more anxiety, no more insecurity. You're not going to feel an ounce of shame anymore. You're not going to feel a twinge of guilt. Eat as much ice cream as you like. Not a twinge of guilt, not even a tiny little bit, nothing. You will not feel fear anymore. That fundamental human emotion we experience so often in so many forms, you'll not feel fear anymore. Your mind will be your friend at last. It's not going to distort reality. It's not going to tell you lies. It's not going to project some false thing that you start believing that takes you off in some other direction. Your mind will be absolutely conformed to reality as it truly is. You'll see yourself as God sees you. You'll see other things as God sees them. You will be a healthy and a whole person mentally and emotionally. And your body's going to be resurrected too. No more phone call from the doctor with the test results that you really didn't want. No more sickness. No more disease. No more cancer. Not even a common cold with that cough that lasts and lasts and lasts. None of that. No more visits to the GP. No more doctors. No more oncologists, cardiologists, neurologists, cardiovascular surgeons. No more osteos, physios, chiros, none of that. And if you're in the medical profession, God bless you, there's going to be even greater things for you to do in the new creation. People might still come and see you, and you just get to you know, examine and, and check and, and go, perfect. Brilliant. I can't believe it. How old are you? 850? You've never looked better. And you'll just be able to bless people and encourage them all day long. Who knows what it's going to be like? I, we don't know the details. I think it's good to use our imaginations in these, in these uh, ways, a biblical imagination, to think about what, it, what it's going to be like. Some people have a bit of a, a funny idea about work in the new creation. We get a bit worried about that because we associate work here with such stress or drudgery or difficulty but that's because we experience work in the post-Genesis 3 world where there's been the fall and work is now distorted. But work is good. And work was part of God's original creation and it's going to be part of God's new creation. Because there will be things to do, right? We're not just going to be sitting around on clouds with harps and dinner plates behind our heads. We're going to be doing stuff. We're going to be active. There's going to be projects and ventures and, you know, endeavors to undertake. There'll be responsibilities. We'll be God's co-creators, co-rulers. I don't really picture the new creation just as a static thing that never changes. I think it'll be constantly changing, growing, being enriched, and we are the stewards of this great world, getting to make stuff happen in this world. 
So there'll be work, but it's going to be fulfilling. It's going to be life-giving. There will be no dichotomy between work and rest because fundamentally work will be restful because it will be done with God, through God, in God, and for the glory of God. We'll love work, and it will never come at the expense or sacrifice of anyone or anything else. And we'll live as good stewards of the earth. No more environmental exploitation. No more lack of considering the effects of our actions on the world. The earth will have the curse of sin lifted from it, and the land will work for us, against, for us again rather than against us. You plant a vegetable garden and bang, the next day, cauliflower, potatoes, broccoli, carrots, like you've never seen them before. And I tell you this, your kids are going to love them. They will love them. You don't, you're not going to have to dip them in tomato sauce anymore just to get them to eat them. They'll love the vegetables, all of these things. And we can go on and on and on. And we should go on and on and on because it breathes some life into us in the present, doesn't it? To know that God's got an incredible world in store for us. The total transformation of this present order of brokenness into a new order full of the peace, the shalom of God. Just look as we, as we draw this to a close. Look again at this picture of the new Jerusalem that John sees. The heavenly city, it's actually shaped like a cube. 12,000 stadia in length, 12,000 high, 12,000 wide. And this number 12 keeps cropping up. The 12 gates, the 12 foundations representing the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. The New Jerusalem is this beautiful composite picture of the people of God inhabiting the new creation. From faithful Israel in the Old Testament, those who loved Yahweh followed Him, through to the followers of Jesus in the New Testament and the church era right down to our day and until Jesus returns. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. All those who love God and follow Jesus, all included in the New Jerusalem. And you see in this tree of life, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that beautiful? In Revelation 22, the leaves of the tree in verse 2 are for the healing of the nations. Almost always in Revelation, the nations up to this point have been talked about negatively. They've antagonized God, they've rejected Him, they've been seduced by the prostitute. And now here in Revelation 20, 22, finally we see the healing of the nations. I don't think that means everyone from every nation is going to be part of the new creation, but there will be a great multitude from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation inhabiting this new world. I'd like to think there might still be cultural diversity in the new creation. I don't know, but maybe God will preserve the distinctions, the beautiful distinctions between cultures and ethnicities, but there'll be no more hostility between communities and cultures. There'll be no more antagonism. There'll be no more alienation. Nations, if there are nations, will cooperate and partner with one another for the common good. No more warfare. As the, as the prophets in the Old Testament pictured it, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Or as one modern writer says, they'll convert intercontinental ballistic missile silos into training tanks for inner city kids to learn scuba diving. Isn't that great? Nation will never go to war against nation. No more terrorism. Communities will join hands with other communities, cultures with cultures, ethnicities with ethnicities, and Israelis and Palestinians will build homes for one another on the Gaza Strip. 
That's how the new creation is going to be. That kind of beautiful unity in diversity, in the image of a beautifully diverse God. In the 1970s, John Lennon wrote his famous ballad, Imagine, in which he said, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. And Christians have generally taken that to be hugely offensive and a a total rejection of what we believe about heaven and the afterlife. But you read on in the lyrics of that song and a different theme comes through. He says, I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. It seems like what Lenin is yearning for is a transformed world. A world without all the injustice and inequality and poverty and warfare that he saw in the present world. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder whether if more Christians in Lenin's day had faithfully articulated this biblical vision of new creation, maybe Lenin wouldn't have had so much of a problem with our notion of heaven after all. Because what he objected to was some escapist idea of heaven as an otherworldly realm. He longed for transformation in the present world. And that's precisely what the Bible promises. Except that this will be a world filled with the glory of God. It's not going to come about through any human endeavor. It's not going to come about through social revolution. It's not going to come about through political revolution. It's not going to come about through financial or industrial revolution. It is going to come about through the gracious act of God at the end of history. As Jesus the Son returns, the final judgment occurs, Satan is defeated, and God brings about this new creation. That, I think, is a world that many, many people in our day are yearning for and searching for, and I think we've got a vision to hold out for them. I think we've got a vision to offer this world of the final chapter in the biblical story, not as a vague whim or as a pipe dream, but as the real hope for those who love and follow Jesus of new creation transforming this present world. That resonates deeply with something in us as human beings. It will resonate deeply with those we talk to about it and share it with. It taps into a longing that we all have. And that hope of God's glorious new creation should breathe some life, some hope into the darkness and the brokenness of our present world and our present lives. As we wrap up this morning, I'd like us just to reflect before we have our final song, just to reflect on some words from C.S. Lewis. They're in the final book of the Narnia series called The Last Battle. It hasn't been made into a movie yet, but when it is, I hope it's spectacular because it captures Lewis' vision of the new creation, the new world. Right at the end of that book, Aslan leads the children into this new world, which is called Aslan's country in the book, surpasses anything they've ever experienced, even in Narnia. And Lewis finishes that book and finishes the Narnia Chronicles with these words that describe that new creation. Allow this to capture your heart and your spirit. Then I'll come and close us in prayer and we'll sing our final song. Let's reflect on these words. God, what can we say in response to all this except, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Holy Spirit and renew the entire creation. Come Lord Jesus and reclaim your good world. Come, Father God, and dwell with us here 
for all eternity. Come, Father God, and make all things new. And may we live in the hope of your new creation each day until Christ returns. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.